My conversation partner today is Martin Dobelmeyer. For more than three decades, he has established himself as the leading documentary filmmaker in the world of religion, faith, and spirituality. Often referred to as the Ken Burns of religion, Martin has produced more than 30 feature-length documentary films. He has three regional Emmy Awards, he has been awarded three honorary degrees, and has dozens of national awards, honors, and recognitions. In 2003, Martin and the company he founded, Journey Films, in Alexandria, Virginia, released Bonhoeffer, the definitive documentary on our namesake. The film was a box office success and has since aired on PBS for many years, reaching millions with the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Martin, thank you for inviting me into your home. We're literally sitting having a home conversation. Thank you so much. It's a delight to have you on the podcast. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you, Rob. And congratulations to you for all the work that you continue to do for our namesake, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So the work that you're doing is very important. I'm honored to be with you today. Well, likewise. And folks, you're in for a real treat. Uh, this is the man who created the film that I've often said is the gold standard in understanding who Bonhoeffer was, what motivated him, and of course propelled him, not just to martyrdom, uh, but to the place he occupies in the world today, a very relevant figure, maybe more than ever. I, I might try to argue that, but in any case, I'm sitting with an expert on the subject. And Martin, I often refer to this as a kitchen table conversation when we open the windows for the neighbors to listen in. And our podcast family is exactly that. Uh, we have folks uh, who know one another, who labor in fields that are very relevant to Bonhoeffer's work. And uh, so uh, here we are, at, literally at your table, folks. <laughs> if I bump it in the wrong way, you might hear the noises. But we'd love to start by getting to know you as a member of the family. Can you tell us, uh, were you born a filmmaker? <laughs> well, I, I don't, you know, no, of course. I, I was, uh, but, but I think in some ways I was born with a filmmaker's instinct. So that I was always, I've always been curious I've always tried to be serious about what it is that we're attempting to do in terms of storytelling. I love storytelling. And uh, I just feel lucky somewhere along the line I was able to place myself in a universe that allowed me to, to read the books that I was interested in and then interpret those through the filmmaking process that I, that I go through. So um, I've been doing this now for close to 40 years and I s still like reading and doing the research that I have to do to prepare for these documentary films. I still love to engage with these people, to go out into the field and sit down and spend hour after hour after hour making a film like Bonhoeffer um, and then sitting with that material over the course of sometimes more than a year and trying to craft what I hope will be a, a, a statement, a, a, a perspective on a subject matter like Bonhoeffer that'll have some sort of enduring contribution that it can make to the to the wider conversation. And I think with Bonhoeffer, we we feel as though we've been able to introduce the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer literally to millions of people. Uh, and that really came out of my own experience. I, I 
you know, I went to a Catholic, I grew up a Catholic neighborhood uh, in, in New York. And, uh, and for me, religion was always about memory work. So I'm, I'm growing up in the 50s and the 60s, and it's all about, religion is about memory, memorizing church teachings and memorizing prayers and memorizing and memorizing. And then I get to uh, high school. It's the mid-60s, mid-1960s, and I get introduced by my religion teacher to this character, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And, and all of a sudden, it wasn't memorizing anymore. It was actually in trying to understand how this person could actually be the way that he was in the midst of the chaos and the vengefulness and the hatred that was going on all around him and never giving up that notion of looking for God. And uh, trying to find where you know who is Christ for me today, just kind of continued to reverberate in his language, and then it sort of filtered down to me. So I, were you curious about God, spiritual yeah, things, no, I, religion? I, that's a great question. I, I really did. I thought for a long time about: Do I want to get into ministry? Do I want to do this kind of ministry? And and, and frankly, I think we say that the work that I'm doing as a filmmaker is a form of ministry. That's what I believe. Very much, I would argue that, uh, absolutely. In fact, it's, it's another medium for telling the stories. And religion is very much, as you allude to, uh, not just about memorization, but about stories. What about, did you grow up with stories? Did you grow up in a storytelling environment? I mean, certainly religion is one, but at home? Uh, actually, I would say probably not. I had to go and seek it on my own uh, through television and film and with the books that I was reading. So I, I was always attracted to storytelling. And what was really interesting to me is that um, I was always curious about the religion. I think the storytelling thing just kind of came naturally. I just, you know, I had to do something with all this that I was consuming and it came out the other end in, in the form of story. So and I what about your religious formation? You mentioned Catholic school. That doesn't always indicate that you were Catholic. What was your own formation? I, but I was. Growing up, I, I, I went to Catholic grade school and Catholic high school. And then it was only later on that I began to explode out of that environment into a myriad of other ideas and possibilities. So I have spent the last 40 years of my professional life in a myriad of different places and environments, engaging with different people of different faith traditions, and I think I've just been nourished as a result of that. Hmm. Um, Usually I'm pretty good even at borough accents, but I can't quite place. Where did you literally grow up? What, what, uh, 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 that's very good. No, neighborhood. Queens. In Queens. In Queens, and, but it was honed a little bit more in Boston. Too. Oh, okay. So I had to spend a lot, of, a lot of time in Boston. That's where I sort of Sort of now I hear myself. the Boston. Yeah, so I do hear that, but yeah, yeah. I so served my first church in Queens, Long Island City. So I know Queens well. And how long were you in Queens? I was in, in my early years. I was in Queens, but my family, my father was in business, and we moved every two years. I see. Got it. So Got um, it. that's where I have my roots, uh, and I can put that New York accent on anytime you want. I hear it. it. I, anytime you want it. <laughs> that's I've got perfect. that. But, that's uh, beautiful. We'll just bring that right out. Uh, but I I, uh, I spent a lot of time in New England, and I think a lot of what you're hearing is the New England accent. And, and that's really where the religion thing sort of took hold. Did you study filmmaking in school, in uh, college? Undergraduate degree was in religious studies. Oh, that's right. I did read that in your biography. And then the Pardon master's me. degree was in filmmaking. So I finally got a chance to put those two things together. Nice professional match. That's We all benefit 
from that pairing uh, that, that you did. So now, you know, I realize that when one particular film makes a splash in one particular market, as Bonhoeffer has in the universe that this podcast plays in, you, you sort of get narrowly defined as sort of one film. You've made lots of films. What other subject matter have you treated? Well, we've done a series of, uh, just recently, we've released a series of other biographical films. So I don't do just biographies, but as of late, that's been what we've been doing films on. The last one that we actually produced and released to national public television has won a bunch of awards for us, uh, is a film on, on, Abraham, on, Abraham, on Heschel? Abraham Joshua Heschel. Mm -hmm. Before that, Dorothy Day, the great Catholic social justice person. Uh, before that, Howard Those Thurman. Those names are ringing bells in our universe. Yeah, Howard Thurman, who is, I think, really, sort of, uh, we, we've sort of dialed in on Howard Thurman of late. Our folks may not be as familiar with Thurman. Please, uh, yeah, no, would you say a word about great African him? theologian thinker. He was really the, a mentor, uh, half a generation older than, and but a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. In, in some ways, kind of, defines African-American theology or, or theological uh, uh, content? In theological terms, yes, but also, too, he's, there's, there's a mystical aspect about Howard Thurman mm -hmm. that I think really is opening him up now to a whole new universe of admirers because to read his work, it's not just theological, it's also sort of that personal experience that you come out, that sort of that hunger for the spirit that you're looking for within the, the idea of the search for God. So and, and thus maybe the, the description of him as a prophetic voice. That's how I've heard him yeah, yeah. referred to as a prophetic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. voice. And before that, we did a film on uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who, of course, has an immediate connection to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and was, in, in some form, a mentor, a, a sort of a counterpoint to the approach that Bonhoeffer had when he first comes to the United States. He engages Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr, who was already, I think, the reigning public theologian of his day. And Niebuhr and him didn't quite see eye to eye in, in, in the earliest years, but they become very close friends, great admirers of each other, and I think it was a terrible loss for Reinhold Niebuhr when he got the news that Bonhoeffer had died. Yeah, especially after he had essentially uh, urged him to remain here in the United in States. In the United States, yeah. Safely. So we had done those biographies, but we've also done, I, I did a, a film that became very popular for us called The Power of Forgiveness. Um, and uh, a film uh, not so long ago called uh, Chaplains where I spent about a year and a half traveling around, mostly around the country, um, spending time with chaplains from different faith traditions who are working in prisons and hospitals. Uh, we went to Afghanistan uh, to be with military chaplains who are working in Afghanistan. And so that's where your religion meets, really where the rubber meets the road. It's, it, it, was, it was really an opportunity to see how people were trying to bring that faith dimension into the real life chapters of what's happening in the professional worlds, and uh, that was just a that was a great experience for us. So, what number then? What number film for you was Bonhoeffer? How many films? I had think you I made up fifteen to? before that. Fifteen films before that, and that, and behind what you're saying is a great question, which is why didn't I do the Bonhoeffer film <laughs> earlier? And so there's a, a, there's a little story behind that. I had done other films. I was doing other films. I was in, the, in production of a couple of other films. And um, I had already met 
Eberhard Beitke and Renata Beitke, Bonhoeffer's closest friend and Bonhoeffer's cousin. And we had already decided that we were going to try and see if we could work out an opportunity to do a film. And then I began to get the word here in America that these people who had been really close to Bonhoeffer in his life were beginning to get to the point, and in terms of age, that it might be a little bit more tragic if we don't get to them soon. Uh, and so I stopped what I was doing and committed myself, raised some money, and went over and spent about six weeks in Germany. What years are we 99, talking about? 1999. Um, and did some of the initial interviews that became later part of the film. I had not raised enough money to be able to make the film, but I did raise enough to go over and make that trip. And now I have this bank of, of interview material with some of the people who were closest to Bonhoeffer. Um, and it took us a couple of years to raise the rest of the money and to actually make the film, but I was very grateful that I had done that initial run over to, to Germany to get all those interviews. I, I can... I'm very proud to say that I did the last interview that was ever done uh, with Bonhoeffer's closest and dearest friend, Eberhard Beitke. Mm. And I, I think you and I think other people um, know that how central Eberhard Beitke was to allowing the legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer to flourish and to grow. And it was Eberhard Beitke who really continued to interpret his friends, his best friend's theology, through all the different changes that happened over the next half century after Bonhoeffer dies. Bonhoeffer dies, he's 39 years old, and he's not a well-known household figure like he is today. Yeah, Bonhoeffer, people imagine him to, be, to have been as famous then, or shortly after, as he is now, not at all. Right. Little known, actually. Yeah, and I think it was a, a lot of that was Eberhard Beitke, who I spent enough time with him to know that he would never deny, a, a, you know, sort of a, an emerging theology student or a, someone interested in the storyline of American of German history, whatever whatever aspect it was that they were coming to him to learn something about how Bonhoeffer intersected with that. Eberhard Beitke was would spend an enormous amount of time, read their dissertations, do all the things that a good friend would do uh, to preserve and to promote the legacy of his good friend, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Eberhard, we should all have friends like Bonhoeffer had hmm. in Eberhard Beitke. And, and frankly, uh, I, I never met Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but in spending the time with the people who knew him, uh, it was so remarkable uh, to see how, despite the fact that they had not seen him for 40 years, they still had memories that were as vivid as that happened yesterday. As, as if it was yesterday that they were still with... You, you would ask a question about a certain detail in their life and somebody who had been at Finkenwalder in the seminary, uh, and that was their only encounter with Bonhoeffer. They were there for a year or two with Bonhoeffer in Finkenwalder. And you ask a question about a detail that was going on at that time. This is 1935, 36, 37, and their eyes just lit up. The memory was so vivid, it remained so vivid in their lives. That's how deep an impact Dietrich Bonhoeffer had on them. And, and you, you can sense that in some of the interviews featured in the film. You, you can hear uh, the, the, those vivid, not just memories, but emotions and feelings. You have one... I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name who was a student of Bonhoeffer. He had been a Nazi. He, he supported Adolf Hitler. Otto Dutzis. That's it. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and you feel, you, you feel the connection that he had 
uh, with with Bonhoeffer. And may I ask you this, just this kind of, uh, you know, those parts of the story, little told or never told, but I'm, I'm curious who saw Bonhoeffer as your subject as as worthy of investment. Who who ended up participating in the funding of the film? I know how difficult that is to raise money for a project like that. Who who you don't have to reveal names, but no, I'm happy to who, do it. What sorts of people no, came no, forward? I have to say that uh, we are a curious lot independent documentary filmmakers and so those who stand you up they are a peculiar burden <laughs> we, we do <laughs> but but they, you know those who are willing to stand up with us and and support us and say we believe in you are rare and you have to say thank you and in this particular case it was the lily endowment um in indianapolis indiana and they said no, lily no, does so much good so in much the world i mean they are really remarkable and they said we'll take a chance on this we don't really do f- filmmaking support but um, we think this is a worthwhile endeavor, and so they. And it's only because of their good graces that I was actually able to make that film. Bravo to Lily. Bravo to you for convincing them to take that unusual risk. Uh, and no doubt they are quite pleased with the risk that they took because of the success of the film. Uh, can we go back to your process? in choosing Bonhoeffer as a subject today, and those of us who are fans, I mean, you know, the the few thousand people that that subscribe to this podcast are all super fans of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We would ask the question, why not make a film? Of course you made a film about Bonhoeffer. But it's not, I, I know enough documentarians to know it's not an easy decision to make which you know subject is going to really play well as a, the subject of a documentary? How did you make that decision about Bonhoeffer? Well, I think the the decision really started because I was I, I just couldn't get Bonhoeffer out of my head. I, I just couldn't. You know, I'm introduced to his writings in high school. It stuck with me. Um, I, I you know I had gone off and done other films. Um, but Bonhoeffer was always there somewhere in the back of my mind that I'm going to have to get around to making this film. I, I just felt that he was so important to me personally. I just needed the chance to be able to communicate that to others. And so in some ways, it's a really personal story for me. Um, and the privilege, it's a very, very selfish thing to say this, but the privilege to spend weeks and weeks and weeks with these people and experience them not only as subject matter, theologians, uh, you know, historian kind of people, but also as, as human beings who actually were in the midst of that incredible turbulence and forced, not by their own choice, but forced to make those decisions about how will they, they do this. I mean, Bonhoeffer, you know, creates this, uh, really starts this uh, seminary to train the next generation of the confessing church pastors and before the war is over with so many of them, a third of them are killed um, and they're you know, conscripted, conscripted into the service of the Germans and they will die. It was, an un- it was an unforgettable time. And I think that's part of what the endless attraction to Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. He becomes a window to see how do you actually continue to profess a God of love and caring in the midst of all the hatred and all the violence and all the heartbreak that was going on around him. How do you do that? 
Uh, and we, we try to label him, oh, is he a saint? Is he a martyr? Uh, all those terms can always be left to consideration and debate, but the truth of the matter is there's without any question, this is a man who's in the eye of the storm and struggling to understand what God is saying to him, what God is calling him to do, and how does he lead as a spiritual leader for others? How does he say something to people uh, that actually can be important and life-changing for them because they are in the midst of the turbulence. As you approached, once you made your decision, I'm doing a film on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how, how did you approach the subject? And as you're thinking about the answer to that, uh, which is probably right on, on, on your lips now, but I'll give you a little time by just saying that one of the things that impresses me so much about your masterful treatment of this complex subject is that you bring out not just all the dimensions of Bonhoeffer himself, but of the times, of the setting. You go into history, you, you, you treat the history leading up to the National Socialist catastrophe in Germany. You, you treat uh, the, the cultural dimensions to the Bonhoeffer story, the religious and ecclesi ecclesial dimensions to his story, as much as you treat his interior world and his relationship to Beitka and, and to others, certainly to his family, this is, that's a lot of perspective uh, to capture. How, how did you go about forming the, the storyline for the film? Well, each one of those, I think, is a building block towards what you're trying to get to, um, which is to try to understand this, the complexity of not only this man, but the times. Um, I think you don't, know, you don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer unless you're already able, and why he responded to what was happening in World War II, uh, unless you're able to know that when he was 12 years old, he lost his oldest brother, Walter, who had gone off to World War I to fight on the side of the Germans and dies two weeks after on the front. Now, that becomes... In my mind, a real human dimension to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So you don't just see him as somebody who, so who who reads theology and then interprets that theology. This is someone who actually says that um, death at that time in 1918, death had knocked on the door of almost everybody he knew, and so the consequences of war were very real. And so as it's building up in the 1930s, he's got that in the back of his mind: the loss of his own brother, the turbulence in his own home. So I think all these elements of Bonhoeffer's life, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a Rubik's Cube. You have to figure out how to put that together, but that's, that's the challenge of it. But I think in some ways that's the fun of it, because ultimately you can, you, can, you can craft a story that you hope, given the amount of time and the parameters that you have to work with, um, will actually reveal somebody who's actually worth exploring. And the, the film is 90 minutes. It, I think it could have been longer even in some, some ways. And so I'm, I'm governed by the fact that it was going to go to theaters and it had to play at a, at a theatrical level, at a theatrical time. Uh, and also, too, um, uh, the, the one of the benefits of it is that the Germans were incredibly um, committed to documenting so much of what they were doing at the time. And so you have the, the sad benefit of being able to 
to say well, there's a lot of footage about that. We can we can find a lot of footage to support that. And that's one of the practical challenges of every documentary filmmaker. You can come up with an idea, but do you actually have the material to build the film that you're hoping to build? And more than once, when I first watched it, I was doing my late-in-life doctoral work when I discovered you and the film and got so much out of it in, in so many ways. You, you prepped me for my doctoral work in a way nothing else could because you put all that together in such a, a magnificent and, and appealing package for me. But, you know, watching that and then watching it again so it was fresh in my mind for this conversation with you. More than once, I'm, I'm kind of taken aback by some of the footage you were able to obtain and that is contained. Everything from home movies of Bonhoeffer uh, to uh, rare, uh, you know, voice film. Uh, what do we call it? You know, a sound film of Hitler. Uh, and his henchmen. How did you obtain some of the rarer footage? Uh, that part of the work had to be laborious. <laughs> well, but it's also part of the of the fun. You know, we I would go and um, one of the people that I interviewed in the film I remember distinctly was Albert Schoenherr, uh, who was the bishop of late of uh, of the German Church, and uh, uh, and he was one of the seminarians in Finkenwalder. And so he had not been asked before, but he had a number of photographs that was part of, that were part of his own personal collection, and he would bring them out. So we would do the interview, and he would say, "Look, I have two or three photographs." Somebody else would say, "Well, I have this one or two photographs." And and so you, the, so as the film is evolving, going along, we were constantly surprised by other material that was out there and available to us. Um, and, and I just have to ask you where the where the uh, the Bonhoeffer family footage came from. Do you remember? I'm taking yeah, back I, I think quite that came. Years, no, so. I think that came from uh, through the, his um, the the family connected to his uh, twin sister Sabine. Ah, right. Um, I, I I met her. Uh, I met her in 1999 when I came over, and she was very frail. Uh, but that's his twin sister. So mm -hmm. um, that that came through through there, and it was only like. What, twelve seconds, fifteen seconds, and it shows him um, at a family outing. So it's really, really. That's the one. Something. You know, that's that. That's what took me aback yeah. because you don't see him in motion. I mean, even though that's sort of incidental motion, it's mm -hmm. it's it's not really focused on him. The lens seems to be focused on his father, Carl. Yeah. But he's in the background, moving around, and you don't see that. You don't see him yeah. in a dynamic state. I'm used to seeing him, you know, in, in a static state. Well, I mean, that's. I mean, we don't. The filmmakers don't talk about this. But when you, what you've really, you don't have any audio recordings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Exactly. Yeah. You have 15 seconds of him throwing a ball in a family outing with his family. Other than that, there's no film footage. It's not like he's got new. There's newsreels about Dietrich Bonhoeffer that you might have about. FDR or some other kind of character at the time. Uh, and so we're piecing together elements to see whether or not we can actually make the emotional connection for the audience that they feel is that they, they get to know this person and, 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 and like I did, become deeply you know, connected to this person, that they actually could open up their heart and their mind to him. And, and that's the big challenge for us. And I think one of the other things is there's quite a bit of footage of Hitler. I mean, there's lots of footage of, of Adolf Hitler, but what I was particularly interested in 
uh, is not another Hitler story. I was particularly interested in the role of the church and Hitler's perspective of the role of the church in the 1930s because one of the, one of the clear indictments of the film is that the, the Church of Germany, coming out of World War I, when it felt as though it had lost all of its credibility within the wider population of Germany, was really in some ways desperate to reground itself in the German population. Hitler, they tied their, they, they tied their wagon to Adolf Hitler. Uh, that in the end proved to be absolutely catastrophic. But you see Hitler realized that he was starting to emerge as a kind of a character that the churches wanted to align themselves with. And he used that to his, his, to, totally to his advantage. And he used that language. Isn't that interesting? I mean, Hitler was smart enough to use the language of religion, talked about redemption and salvation, uh, and was, was able to play on that need that human beings have for some sense of transcendence that the churches often bring. But he replaced that need um, with, with National Socialism. And that's really what I, I allude to there, is in, in all the footage I had seen of Hitler and, and his, his histrionics and, and uh, you know, bellicose uh, screaming, um, I had never, maybe, maybe I was exposed to it and, and, and wasn't conscious of it, but in your film, we're seeing him use religious language in a way I had not seen in any other presentation of that old footage. So it really is jarring at first, and, and now you start to see the connection with the church. And of course, that's the Bonhoeffer story in, in so many ways. I, I like to remind people that Bonhoeffer was as much a defender of the integrity of the church and its witness in the world as he was a resistor of Adolf Hitler. Uh, so, um, all right, so now, you know, you, you, how long did it take you to make the film? About a year and a half, mm -hmm. uh, about a year, yeah, about, about a year and a half. And I, the interesting thing for me is that uh, you learn over the years of making dozens of films, uh, which one is going to continue, which ones are going to continue to have energy and create interest and so you channel yourself and define the, the years uh, the time after the making of the film and the release of the film to making sure that there's energy that stays around the film so I went out I, I know Rob I probably did a hundred public events with the film so I would go out night after night after night and, and present the film and talk about Bonhoeffer we'd, I'd be on, we'd have panels and sometimes it was just myself and also what I find so remarkable at the time is this is around 2003 and 2004 America's launching its um, its military response to the events of 9-11 by coming into Iraq Afghanistan and uh, there would be sometimes heated debates in the public screening of the Bonhoeffer film in the conversations we would have after and some people would stand up and say I can see it now I can see it so clearly through Bonhoeffer's example we must go and kill the evil in the mm -hmm. world. And in that particular case, they interpret that as Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. Others say, are you kidding? Bonhoeffer's, Bonhoeffer really has in his heart and soul the, the, the sensitivity of a pacifist. We have to figure out ways to negotiate this. And so within an audience of hundreds of people, there'd be this dynamic that I have to navigate between those who interpret Bonhoeffer one way and those who, who see him for a different purpose. So it, 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 was, it became very timely, and I think in some ways that helped the film 
Uh, but it also raises the notion of the timeliness of Bonhoeffer. I mean, his conflict and his, his confrontation of evil at the time is a timeless battle. And we're seeing it relived again and again. And, I mean, this is audacious for me to say, but uh, in, in so many ways, first, I often think of Bonhoeffer as uh, before his time in the, in the sense that, of course, he was, he was uh, you know, perfectly suited for that moment in time. But in so many ways, what was yet to come in the future, I think, intersects with his thinking and his approach and his challenge to all of us, as is the case now. So what I'm getting at here is while the film was released in 2003, and now is in its 20th year, I see it as, as relevant now as it was in 2003, and maybe even more so because the questions that are being asked now about the trajectory of the world, not just the United States, but most certainly in the United States, an awful lot of it is addressed in the treatment of Bonhoeffer's life and thought in your film. So I'm going to say that your film, Bonhoeffer, is as fresh in this moment of time as it was 20 years ago. So I almost feel like I'm, I'm sitting with a, a filmmaker who's about to release <laughs> a great film that's for this moment in time. And, and we want to do everything we can to foster uh, a re-examination of your film and, and, and all those things, again, uh, it, it's going to catalyze the same kinds of discussions. I mean, after all, it's just now that we're looking, you know, we're sending military aid to Ukraine. And there's Putin uh, in, in that mix. And these are shadows that come back from Bonhoeffer's story. And then, of course... Uh, we have our own domestic dynamics and some of the questions that have been raised about fascism from both sides of, of the political cultural uh, divide. So here's a film that really speaks to our moment in time. So how, how, is, how is the 20th anniversary of your award-winning film being being celebrated, being exploited right now for, for positive use. Now we're getting, um, you know, getting emails and calls regularly about the film and, and the idea that it's still relevant today. I, it's because Bonhoeffer, I mean, I, I'm proud of the film, I am, of course, but Bonhoeffer is, uh, Bonhoeffer is not only a timely, but also a timeless character. Uh, I mean, we, we have the we have a clear moment right now, at least in America, and I think around the world, once again, the rise of anti-Semitism. 2021 was a devastating year in terms of violence and uh, terrorist activity on synagogues and Jewish shops. How, how is that not harken back to the time that Bonhoeffer was, and, and Bonhoeffer lived, and, and his courage to speak out uh, and say something about that? I mean, the whole, the whole idea that he felt as though this was what a good Christian should be doing, which is speaking on behalf of, 
of Jews and that anti-Semitism had to be had to be stopped right now. It's happening all over again. I, I'm also reminded too, as I was preparing for this, that uh, Bonho- Bonhoeffer in the mid 1930s, he's he's still very young. He's in his 20s. He's invited to Fano, um, Denmark, to sit down and part be part of this global gathering of people to try and figure out how the world is going to work uh, in the 1930s, knowing that this big cloud of of, of Germany now once again rising as a huge angry military force. Are we going to go through this again? What we had gone through in World War One, and the answer we all know will be yes. Uh, but Bonhoeffer's call to sort of sit down with people and begin to talk in terms of how do we stop this now? We're doing that right now, Rob. I mean, the truth of the matter is there's a cloud that's uh, has has taken over the Western world right now about what's happening in Ukraine and the tensions. We're reading about that every day. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer's efforts to speak truth and justice to the powers that have to hear that, I think, again, is as timely and important as it is. And, and also, I mean, the fundamental reason why we turned to Bonhoeffer is because in the midst of all that, he was looking for what was God saying. And you can't, you can't simply make Bonhoeffer a political and social figure. This is a man who, at the heart of what he was trying to do, was to try to understand what God was calling him to do at that moment. And I think a lot of people, I've seen it happen again and again, they sort of want to, they don't want to deal with that aspect of it. They like Bonhoeffer as an historic and political and social character. The theology thing, well, we're not really sure if we want to get there. At the core of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is this never-ending, courageous search to understand who God is and who Christ is for him or for us at that particular at this particular moment and, and there's a dimension to that i'd like to explore with you just for a second here and that is when you talk about bonhoeffer's spirituality his theological commitment his deep passionate faith that went beyond institutional religion and maybe that's where part of the confusion is he wrote of of religionless christianity uh, of a world come of age of the rejection of old religious institutions and forms. But that didn't equate to an abandonment of Christianity uh, or of faith in general. So, you know, when you talk about his spirituality, I think it's impossible to separate that from his experience in Harlem with Abyssinian uh, Baptist Church and his encounter with African-American spirituality. Can we talk about how you see that just for a moment in time? Because I see it as a nexus with our time now where we're discovering black spirituality maybe in a certain way, certainly in a discussion of our own social dynamics in this country. There's something above that, even in recent day, I don't want to date this podcast because we like them to live into infinity, but... Uh, I'll just say that at this moment in time that we're having this conversation, there's a lot going on about, uh, uh, you know, the deaths of, of, of black men, young black men, especially at the hands of police officers and so forth, and all that foment. But that often finds itself now back into the black church. The, 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 the locus of the response comes out of the black church, out of black clergy, and so forth. And here, Bonhoeffer's living in New York, 
and he's taken by a, a fellow seminarian to this church in, in Harlem. And I think most of us know the story of Abyssinian Baptist, but if you don't, it's really worth reading. And maybe I'll put in a, a word for a, a mutual friend of ours, Reggie Williams, who's written a beautiful treatment of it, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, worth reading. Uh, but in that encounter, uh, how important do you see that in, in the Bonhoeffer story? Well, I think, I think even Bonhoeffer didn't realize what was happening to him. But what was happening to him was he was discovering the presence of Christ in the other. I mean, this is a young, white, intellectual who comes out of a semi-aristocracy, a level of aristocracy in Germany, the intellectual world of, uh, that he was living in. All of his theology was out of the book. Uh, it was all, you know, mind stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I connect to Bonhoeffer because I, I connect to Bonhoeffer because at, earlier in my own life this is all in the this intellectual stuff we're dealing with, and then I meet Bonhoeffer and he's actually got traction. He's he's actually he is where the rubber meets the road. And for for Bonhoeffer, he reads all of his theology, comes to this country, initially has this sort of negative sense that oh theology is not really being taught here at Union Theological Seminary. This is not real theology. But eventually he makes his way to uh, Abyssinia and he sees that this is, it, it blows his mind to see that this is the, the same gospel that he believes in being preached in a totally different way and actually being lived in a totally different way. He, he now sees the effects of injustice. He sees people trying to resist what are, what's happening to them in a collective sense and building community. And he wants to teach in the midst of all this. He's teaching Sunday school. So now he he is able to make that transformation between sort of book theology and live theology. And that's all that I think really marks him. And, uh, you know, people have asked me, well, would, would Bonhoeffer be involved with Black Lives Matter? How would he not be involved in Black? How would he not be involved? How would he not be out campaigning about this and speaking about this and thinking about this? He he really ends his, towards the end of his writing career, while he's still free to do that before he's put in prison. He's writing about the, the notion that we have finally come to see the world in a vision from the from those who live it below, from the from the from the notion of who are those who are oppressed and those who are suffering, those who are maltreated. So he's he's decided that I need to shift totally my mindset, my lens has to totally invert so that I can actually begin to see the world from other people's perspectives. And I think in some ways that's a message for all of us. And I think it's as relevant now as it was in his time. Can you see the, can you see the world through anybody else's lens except your own? Well, in my evangelical tradition, we say, brother, that'll preach. <laughs> and indeed it does. And it's so much in concert with Bonhoeffer's life, his message. Martin, I'm thinking, you know, folks who are listening right now probably have the same impulse that I have, which is, first of all, uh, well, even even before I, uh, I suggest what we might do with this film, let me just say, if you haven't seen the film, I hope right now you're thinking, I, I got to see this film. Yes, indeed, you do. It's the definitive documentary on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's not simply an exquisite biography, which of course it is, but it's much more than that. And uh, so if you haven't seen it, you need to, what's the easiest way for someone to see 
your work. Well, you can go to Amazon. It's there on Amazon. You can purchase the film on Amazon. They can come to our website, which is journeyfilms.com, J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-F-I-L-M-S.com. You'll have a live link to that, folks, in the text surrounding this podcast post. And um, thank you for mentioning that. We've actually coupled it, if I can put a little promotion. We've actually coupled Bonhoeffer's profile documentary film with these other recent documentary biographies that I've done. So Heschel's part of that. Uh, it's a collection called Prophetic Voices. So you can now actually get five films on five different seminal characters of religion in the 20th century. Abraham Joshua Heschel, Dorothy Day, Howard Thurman, Reinhold Niebuhr, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer all together. Okay. That's an assignment, everybody. <laughs> That's an assignment to view these films. You will not regret the time invested. Now, a lot of our folks, Martin, are pastors. They are academics. They are community organizers. They are institutional executives. And I know I, I can, I can uh, fuse my mind with theirs right now and hear them thinking, wait a minute, I, I want to use this for a program. Is that possible? And is there a licensure process? How does somebody show this film? to an affinity group, to yeah. their audiences, if you will. Now, I, I think in a large part, I think we're supportive of that. And and we have to make it, in order for us to be able to survive and to make these films, they're not cheap to make these films, but, we, but in order to not. support to make, uh, uh, to make these films, here's what we say. Uh, if you want to purchase the film and show it in your, in your uh, church, in Sunday school, Sabbath school, whatever it is, we, we think that's perfectly fine. Uh, if you want to, as a lot of people do, uh, want to host a, an event around the film in your congregation and invite the community into it, we, we feel as though that's a public screening. And we encourage that too. Uh, but we actually ask for some support. So it's all on the website. People can learn how we do that. But that we, we do differentiate between showing it in your classroom, certainly show it to your group and friends and everything. But if you want to have a public event with it, uh, we need we we ask for your support in that. Of course, and I would think all of our folks uh, would want to do that and are budgeted to do that. And this is really rich and good programming. And I know one of the frustrations that I have as the founding president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, and I know a lot of colleagues who labor to reintroduce Bonhoeffer to the world, we often feel a little frustrated. What can I really do? You know, what, what's a popular way for me to do that? Well, this is one very appealing way to do it. Your, you know, your audiences will enjoy it, benefit from it, uh, and they'll want to tell their friends. So let's be a part of this 20th anniversary celebration of the Bonhoeffer film and the other stories connected to it. Uh, and I'm still going out, too. I mean, I still get invitations to go out and have events around the film and present the film and talk about the film. So, I, you know, I hope, at least through this podcast, I actually communicate the idea that I still, I still live in the story. I still care deeply about um, this character, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and try my best to interpret him for wh what we are living through right now. So uh, I, I think the film is, is a, in some ways a time capsule. So one of the things I didn't do is I didn't become didactic within the film. I didn't say, oh, here's, here's the message of the Bonhoeffer story for that time. Here's the, I, I simply said, here's the Bonhoeffer story. 
And now, 20 years later, I hope it still has relevance. We can interpret it now 20 years later, but I didn't try to do that in the film. Yeah, so, it's, it's not dated. This is not a dated film. It has no expiration date. This will be a film, and I suppose already, you know, it's transferred a few times on in terms of medium from, did it come out on actual film, on actual... Uh, we, we, we shot it on film. And then we transferred it immediately to video. So it was shot on film and transferred to video. And that was its original release for television. And now I imagine you stream it. I mean, it's a way it. to stream yes, it. Yes, you can, yeah. Yeah. So it'll continue. I mean, I don't know, you know, uh, what the next medium uh, will <laughs> We're be. We're all trying to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, what's coming next. But whatever it is, this is the kind of film that will just easily transfer from one generation to the next. It's a timeless film, Martin. Bravo. Bravissimo. Thank you. So much. Thank, you. Thank you for making it. Let's just say you you helped me earn a doctorate, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. And I've recommended it in so many places, uh, and will continue to do so. Folks, you know, look at the text around the post here because you're going to find live links. You're going to find your way to Martin Doblemeyer, to Journey Films, to the whole collection of prophetic voices and all the rest. So. Uh, Martin, thank you for spending. This has been the a great pleasure. I mean, I mean, you have done your share to support the legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, he's in good hands with people like you. Thank you, Martin, and uh, and we'll be checking in with you. <laughs>